0: Earlier this year, in March, I set out to teach a series called Age of Rage. It felt to me that the world was on a trajectory of becoming more and more angry about everything. And and not just like a little bit angry, but but really angry. But as I started to work on this series, well, well, I'm pretty sure you don't need me to remind you about what happened in March 2020. And however, as a result of the pandemic, we we started to see remarkable charity from human communities, like stories of of beautiful moments of altruism came in from across the globe. And and I, for one, was hopeful that in the middle of a global pandemic, we might have found something of our Christ-shaped DNA that was bringing the best out of us during the time of adversity. And I am, of course, a Christian, which means that idealism and dreams are part of my DNA. But I don't know if you've noticed, it seems that in the last six months from March to now, we may presently be more angry than we were back then. And again, really angry. Now, I get that this has been, uh, well, let's use the favorite word of 2020, an unprecedented six months. But humanity seems to have gone off the deep end of anger. We're angry about things that just a few months ago we couldn't have imagined why someone would lose their cool over such a thing. Like for example, masks. Like a small piece of material that that we're told highly reduces the risk of you spreading infection to someone else has become somehow a battleground of human freedom and liberty. Or the directional arrows in grocery stores. And the internet, as always, is a place full of strangers shouting at each other, but now about COVID restrictions. Restrictions that are designed to try and save lives are the reason that strangers are now mad at each other. In some countries, people are literally protesting their right to be allowed not to follow measures that are designed to keep them safe from a pandemic. Meanwhile, cancel culture has become the latest form of public shaming. If someone does something that the masses don't like, they're rounded upon, sort of support is withdrawn and often they become the recipient of angry humiliation. And then there's a phrase, there's three words to this phrase, three simple, obvious and true words, but words that have gotten everyone screaming at each other again. The three words, well, you know them, don't you? Black Lives Matter. Now don't hear what I'm not saying, but this phrase seems to be a pretty obvious statement to me. Yet a mass of people have chosen to be divided over this. And while I'm not tone deaf to nuance and precision, the question I really want to ask is, why does this phrase anger so many of us? It's kind of hard to disagree with the ethical philosopher Alistair McIntyre when he says that there seems to be no rational way of securing moral agreement in our culture. Take, for example, Donald Trump. Like I don't know if you've noticed, but he's a slightly divisive figure. Now, regardless of where you stand, of where, of where you stand in relation to your thoughts on him, I'm pretty certain you've got an opinion. And what I've discovered is that often opinions of him are, well, strong. And these opinions not only affect how you see him, but how you perceive the people that disagree with you about him. Like people have described their views of him to me using language such as hope and opportunity and depression and rage. Like none of these are mild words. And what's really exceptional is that he's not even the president of most of the people I've talked to. More remarkable is that around him, there are two machines that are leveraging him to increase rage. Both progressives and conservatives are leveraging the president of America to increase the rage amongst their supporters so that those people will act in the way that those groups want. We live in an age of rage, and it's getting worse. Gallup recently did a worldwide survey of people's mood, and they discovered that 22% of the world identified themselves as being angry, and this seems to be on an upward trajectory. But, and, and let's try to be honest with ourselves, I'm not sure that the main issue of our time is how angry we are, I think that the nuances are actually more subtle than that. It's not simply that we are anger, sorry, it's not simply that we're angry, it's that our anger has a sort of zero to 60 acceleration that a supercar would be proud of. Like we are a triggered people. You know, someone makes a joke or a comment or, you know, shares an image and quickly we take up our rage really quickly. It's as if we're always smoldering, just waiting for someone to pour the gas and turn us into a raging fire. And once that fire is burning, it seems to develop a life of its own. Like take the last six months as an example. Like what is it about us that makes us want to talk about things that make us mad? We start a conversation and it could be about anything at all, yet eventually it starts to move into a conversation about things that are irritating us and making us angry. It's as if the sort of gravitational pull of anger is so great that regardless of my orbit, we will get drawn into the debate and then inevitably our anger will rage to the surface. Like we are an angry mob. Now, there's this ancient letter written by a guy called James. Tradition holds that he was the brother of Jesus. I have a copy of that letter. It's quite easy to get your hands upon uh, one for yourself. Now, in chapter one in verse 19, James says this. He says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now think about that. Quick to listen and slow to everything else. Now, the ancients invariably give out the best advice, but I wonder if this advice is even harder for us in our contemporary setting, because everything moves so quickly, like really quickly. So someone gets triggered on social media, and before we know it, the video or the image or the comment is being shared around the world, and strangers are shouting at each other about it. And sometimes, let's be honest, we just want to be part of it. I mean, how often have you shared something online? only to see something else the next day that makes you wish you hadn't said what you said yesterday. James says, slow down. Like imagine a social media channel that forced you to wait 10 minutes to share something or demanded that you do your research before commenting. Or what about a news outlet that didn't rush to be first with the story, but instead waited to give a balanced, reasoned, and informative view? Like, is the side of the debate that you don't like always wrong? There's this story in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Maybe you've heard it. The story goes like this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, did you see what happened there? They say to Jesus, what do you say? Like, this is a culture and a point in history where people's sexual behavior was highly policed by public opinion, even by the law. Yet really quickly, you realize that this encounter, well, the woman's just a pawn in a much bigger argument. The religious leader's anger isn't at the woman, it's at Jesus. Now, what do you say? Like, because in those days, People could be angry about one thing, but take that anger out on something or someone else. But the story isn't finished yet. It continues, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Like Jesus has this remarkable ability to not take sides. Like Some would say it's the ability to make both sides of the debate mad. I'd say it's a skill to not be drawn into camps or tribes. Like Notice that the conservatives of Jesus' day, they come to him and they want a ruling. They want him to side with them, but he doesn't. So are are we saying that Jesus is on the side of the progressives? Is is Jesus going liberal on sexual morality? Well, Well, no, because he then turns to the lady and tells her to live differently. Like, is Jesus too progressive for the conservatives and too conservative for the progressives? Or is he showing us a different way completely? Is he showing us that taking sides just causes rage? Now, if we're going to talk about anger as a field of research, then it requires us to develop some nuance. And the difficulty of that is when we're outraged, we become a little tone deaf to nuance. You might say that outrage has actually no nuance. It's the extreme side of our anger. It's motivated by a need to punish and destroy. Qualities of hubris and overconfidence abound in outrage. Outrage is fast and, def- and decisive. It's not reflective and reconciliatory. And the story of Jesus that we just read, I-, I think it's a story of outrage. And so I wanna use that story to navigate six characteristics of outrage that Ed Stetzer identifies in his recent book on the subject. The first thing we should note is that outrage is disproportionate. It, it comes in waves and-, and we give little thought to these waves or their intensity. Outrage sees all offenses the same. So even if our anger begins for good reason, it, it kind of snowballs. It, it builds until your response is completely disproportionate to the situation. Like I have those embarrassing parental and marriage moments where, you know what, you know, that's kind of me. It all gets a little disproportionate to what's actually going on. Like sometimes, if you're really alert, you notice in the middle of your outrage that this is disproportionate, but often we don't. In the story today, the woman is having an affair and, and they're threatening to stone her. Like this isn't a proportionate response, even in, even in Bible times. At Jesus' point of history, people weren't being stoned for something like this. Like she's had an affair and, and they wanna push the red button. Like we desperately need proportionality in our world. Like the UN lists proportionality as a requirement in war. It's like a key tenet of just war theory. And sometimes I wonder, do we need like a just social media theory, a way of how we speak with proportionality? The second thing that we must learn about outrage is that outrage is intrinsically selfish. Like unloading our anger, it feels good. It feels good to put others in their place. Like, anger gives us a sense of control. It gives us the feeling that we're fighting back. Now, if you hold on to that, it might explain why it's during this pandemic that we're seeing so many protests and arguments happening. Our lives feel hugely out of control because of this contagion. But, you know, we can regain a feeling of control if we can take out our insecurity on something else. The Pharisees, they saw Jesus as this sort of liberal who was drawing all of the people towards him, making their practices and religion feel weak and like it was losing influence, which creates fear for them. And fear, as the little green theologian Yoda said, so often leads to anger and hate. So when we are outraged, is it worth asking Like what's going on in me? Am I really incensed by this injustice? Or is this just a vent for my rage? Thirdly, outrage is divisive. Like so much of the outrage that we experience at this moment is rooted in our cultural polarization. We're becoming increasingly tribal and we rage against perceived attacks on our clan, on our side of the battleground. Like, and you feel that in this story, don't you? There's sides, there's a them, and there's an us. And outrage is focused on the other, on the them. Like they, they're evil and wrong and ugly too. But what this does is it raises our shields to our own failings. So we won't accept criticism of our own team. Like so often we'll explain and justify behavior from our own side that we would never tolerate from the other. Like think about the jokes that you laugh at and the jokes that offend you. Someone comments on the politician you like and it's outrageous. Someone criticizes the the politician you didn't vote for. Well that, that's hilarious. Now the fourth thing that you want to note about outrage is that it's visceral. Like have you noticed how little context matters in life today? My gut uncritical reaction is always the right one. I don't, cr- don't try and consider the what or the why. Don't even attempt to hear differently. Comment quickly about what you're thinking. Share that post that makes everybody else look stupid. Which kind of makes me want to say, hey, like, where's the man in this encounter with Jesus? We've got a lynch mob with half a story. You can't have an affair on your own, but when you're outraged, you don't notice that. Like somehow they've caught this woman having an affair and are so outraged at Jesus that they, they see this opportunity and they forget to bring the guy along too. So only half the people are here, but truth isn't the focus of outrage, is it? Shutting down, silencing, shaming, canceling, that's the purpose, that's the focus. What do you say, Jesus? They're setting up a trap. And this is the fifth side of outrage. It's domineering. Outrage divides the world into winners and losers, not right and wrong. And that's why I think we're seeing this sort of exponential curve in hyperbole at this moment. We're seeing increased hyperbole. We're seeing increased insults. We're seeing seeing shaming language everywhere. And and we really don't care whether that story about the premier or the prime minister or the president, we don't care whether it's true. We just don't want them to be leading us. And so we'll react in this way. And that brings us to the final characteristic of outrage. It's dishonest. The Pharisees, the Pharisees didn't care about this lady. They just wanted to trap Jesus. So a sham trial, it wasn't really an issue for them. Like regardless of the mental and emotional damage that they do to this woman, point scoring was very quickly more important than truth. Like when we're outraged, do we attack people or ideas? Should we think more about how we talk about people from the other side? Like, you don't need to agree with them, but how should you talk about them? Often, we just want the sort of of out-of-context soundbite that we can share online. It doesn't matter what sort of reasonable logic or discussion could be had. I'll share the quote that makes them look foolish or stupid. So outrage is disproportionate. It's selfish. It's divisive. It's visceral. It's domineering, and it's dishonest but there's just one other nuance in this story I wanna talk about today. You know it already. Outrage is all of these things, but when we add religion to the mix, it has a tendency to make things worse. In a recent Washington Post article, Michael Gerson noted this. He said, how we order our outrage says much about us. Do we feel the violation of a religious rule more intensely than the violation of human dignity? Do we prioritize our religiosity above our anthropology, above our theory of human beings and their rights? Like we too quickly forget that a person, that this person is an image bearer of God. And we put our beliefs above their humanity. You know, it's like they're going, let's beat Jesus. Who cares about the psychological damage to this lady? So we look at this story now and quite quickly, I think when we read this story, we see this is a terrible story. But what if it was a gay man or a First Nations woman or an immigrant child? What if it was a conservative or a liberal? Like, Do our beliefs overwhelm our anthropology? Does our outrage prevent us from seeing people as Jesus invites us to? Which sort of leads us to a core part of this story. They just don't care about the woman at all. They're really angry about Jesus. There's a sense that they have what you'd call disordered anger. And I have to ask myself this question regularly. Like, what am I really angry about? Or perhaps even sometimes, who am I really angry at? 2,000 years ago, Aristotle noted something that I think still remains true. Aristotle said this, anyone can become angry. That is easy, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, that that is not easy. So perhaps we need to listen to the Hebrew prophet Micah, who offers an insight into a way of living that would probably still help us today. Micah says, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, humility. All three of which, I think you'll agree, are in short supply when we're outraged. And so Jesus crouches and he writes on the ground, even though everybody's still kind of questioning him behind the scenes. And the outrage-inducing ideas are going to keep getting retweeted. They're going to keep getting shared. Some people are going to keep shouting, but how are you going to respond? Jesus, Jesus pauses. He takes a deep breath. He takes some time out. He calms himself from the outrage which is being heaped towards him. And then he says, "Well, if you don't have any sin, go ahead and rage." Like do you see what Jesus does? Like He raises the battle lines, the otherness. He takes everybody, and he puts them in the same boat. And when you take all of us and point out that so often we're all in the same boat, slowly outrage starts to fade away. Like surely it's not that simple, is it? But I think what Jesus does is he gives us a model for acting Christianly. Like let's identify this sort of modeling in three ways that might help us with our outrage. The first thing that Jesus kind of points out is be quick to listen and slow to anger. We heard James say it, so maybe we should listen to him. Stop shooting from the hip, take a moment. Number two, maybe we phrase it like this, reject the impulse to right every wrong. Like you are not the judge of the world. And then thirdly, think through what it is you're actually trying to accomplish is your aim destruction or is it reconciliation? What if speaking Christianly or perhaps typing Christianly just involves sometimes speaking less? Like don't send that tweet or that email, that Facebook post, that text, don't make that comment. I think Stanley Harawas guides us well as the church in this. He says, the church requires a certain kind of people to sustain it as an institution across time. They must be a people of virtue, specifically the virtues necessary for remembering and telling the story of a crucified savior. They must be capable of being peaceable among themselves and with the world so that the world sees what it means to hope for God's kingdom. In such a community, we're not free to do whatever we will, but are called to develop our particular gifts to serve the community of faith. So Jesus is, is guiding us in how we should avoid outrage. He sacrifices his right to outrage back, and instead, he rescues us. In Matthew chapter five and verse nine, Jesus says, "Blessed." are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And it's kind of like a a big cycle, isn't it? God's children are peacemakers, and therefore peacemakers are recognized as children of God. And so maybe this is your blessing today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they, they will give up their outrage. And may his grace and peace be with you.